episode of What The Plus Set, where we break down the complexity of VSG and show you how to unlock the often overlooked Plus F VSG. I'm your host, Oliver Barnes, and today we have an extraordinary guest who's been on the ESG journey and mastered its application to create extraordinary outcomes for the businesses that he's worked for. Joel Coward started his career in the mid-90s in the Australian Army before graduating in Asian Studies from the University of Adelaide. He quickly progressed with a Juris Doctor of Law in Mining, Environment and Human Rights, supporting mining, energy, industrial and technology clients such as Glencore, Shell, Samson, Barrett Gold and Apple, to name a few. In 2016, he rolled up his sleeves and, and went in-house for BHP and was their global lead of sustainable and responsible value chain transparency, overseeing $20 billion of upstream procurement, $37 billion of downstream trading, and over $400 million of carbon projects. He then became group manager of sustainability at Oz Minerals, who used ESG as a critical instrument in driving outcomes such as reducing insurance premiums and securing over $700 million of debt that supported the development of the West Musgrove Nickel Project. In this episode, we'll dive deep into Joel's journey. So without further ado, um, let's get started. Joel, welcome to What The Plus F. Hi, Ollie. Thanks for having me. It's really good to be here. Fantastic. So Joel, tell us a little bit about your, your journey, um, you know, navigating to the, to the point of your career where you, where you stand. As we understand, you know, you started off in the military, you, you have a background in law, you've worked for some of the, the, the mining majors here in Australia, and it's quite a, quite a journey that you've been on. Yeah, look, the journey is an interesting one because what it's, what it's been consistently around has been conflict over resources and the pursuit of resources uh, to, to, to build a, a modern world. You know, so through that, I was lucky enough in some of my more formative years to grow up in far north South Australia, uh, where my parents were in an Olympic Dam, which is now the big, uh, you know, BHP owned copper, copper uranium mine. They were the town doctors up there. And, and through that was exposed to a variety of different um, leadership within that mining community. And mining fascinated me because it was an adventure. It was the pursuit of going to interesting places, you know, looking at those, looking at, the commodities that drive and create the modern world. And through that, the key piece of advice was get an Asian education, speak an Asian language, join the army, and then come back and see us. So I did. And what I found through that pursuit was, although it took about 10 years to get to the sort of mining and resources phase, what I found was the constant through it was all conflict was for resources. So no matter where you went in the world, and it didn't matter if it was Cambodia or Africa, there was a pursuit and conflict for resources. So I figured that I was trying to do good in the world. I was trying to help people, you know, through, through, you know, that work. And then I suddenly realized that if you become a lawyer, you can work within the major companies to create that change simply by how they spend their money and how they operate. So that's what I did. So I went back, went back to university, get, became a mining and petroleum and mining and energy lawyer, specializing in environmental and human rights law. And then, worked over the last 15, 16 years to tie ESG into the revenue lines, mainly because even if you weren't interested in people or planet, good ESG and good sustainability is profitable. So if you can aim that at a CFO, 
it moves it from thoughts and prayers and hugs and kisses and you know nice nice a nice thing to have to saying this is a business necessity it's a key enabler it's for so many elements in business so that's what i did working through groups like Glencore Extrato, doing every part of ESG from everything from land access and native title to land acquisition through environmental permitting and approvals, and then starting on the path of traceability. So transparency around value chains, especially on the back of the Dodd-Franks Act, where it was talking about you know minerals coming out of places like the Democratic Republic of Congo, to be able to say you need transparency around that because to prevent you know further conflict to prevent you know crime and anti-corruption and that journey started about 10 10 years ago and has you know manifested itself now with you know having worked for some you know two really significant companies and especially of late because of their you know, their, their, their merging was one was bhp and then of course the second was oz minerals um <clears throat> who have just, you know, just, just merged together in a, you know, very public way, which is excellent as for that pursuit of critical minerals, uh, which, which are going to be critical to uh, decarbonisation. So that journey has been a really interesting one. And where the fundamental is, is, is baking ESG into the business structure, the business project process, and then along its value chain. So it's not just doing it in isolation anymore. It's actually baking it into the way they operate and the way they buy and the way they sell and the way that they invest. Interesting. Uh, fascinating. And, and those kind of conversations that would have happened in those, in, in those rooms, I mean, you, you, you're talking about um, tentacles across lots and lots of different reporting units and departments within, within those companies. You know, how, did those, how do those conversations go down and at what level are those conversations being had? And, um, you know, is there any of those sort of experiences they're able to share publicly? <laughs> um, Schopenhauer, the great philosopher, and my father always, always said that change takes three, three major processes. First is, first is derision, the second is violent opposition, and the third is acceptance as being self-evident. And I, I think when you're trying to bring sustainability context into businesses as not just a change but an evolution in business, it goes through all those three phases right now. And you can see that anywhere, and any practitioner will tell you that. Um, the first meetings generally is always like, who is this quite mad person with these mad concepts? But out of that, what I found out of that was the ability to be able to say what you do in sustainability must be not just relevant to the business and relevant to the, your stakeholders. And those stakeholders are your customers, your suppliers, your communities, your First Nations, your employees and your investors and the government as well. It's got to be relevant to that person you're talking to. So not company to company, but person to person as well. So if you're a, you know, operating as a surface manager for running a smelter or a refinery, what's the work you're doing in sustainability making going to do to make their life easier um, and better and simpler as part of that value chain? So the biggest thing with it was capability, providing context, enabling capability for capacity you know really simply as in like most people in this those spaces the the esg and sustainability context concepts they don't they they've might have, might have heard of them they might not have and so as such you've got to provide that context from a macro environment 
to then enable that capability at a board and executive level for them to look at ESG and sustainability as a risk, as a real risk, as a material risk. But in, as a risk, risk is always a threat and an opportunity, right? So it's, 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 it's not just a all threat, it's all bad. It's actually all good. How can we actually capitalize on this? How can we preserve money, make money, save money, you know, um, doing this, if we're going to do it, let's do it anyway and, and do it the best we can so we can help people, planet and profit. And the third is then that, not just that capability, then enabling them to have the capacity to do something about it. So, you know, resource appropriately, get the right data, enable that change. And that then creates the final thing, the culture. The culture in the company to innovate, to accept and be vulnerable. I know this sounds really silly and it's a bit sort of Simon Sinek and, and the mindset, <laughs> but, but accept being vulnerable and going, actually, it's okay not to be okay, a bit like mental health. It's okay not to be okay. There are problems. Problems are good. The more problems we find, the more we can solve, the more we help others. We you know, bring people, planet and profit together, right? So it's, but it, that is a long journey and you can't run at them. So it was always that ability to just to drip feed, quietly influence, you know, like little drops of water, raindrops make an ocean, right? So that was the real major learning out of it. And what I found was each company was different. You know, a big company, a big mining major, you know, and that's doesn't matter which mining major you look at or any major company or major bank right now is, is a relatively large bureaucracy. And the challenge in that is, is, is shifting that mindset. Whereas you get a smaller company, you know, one of the great joys, and I'll be this blunt and say, you know, a company like Oz Minerals was so good under Andrew Cole and his execs because they absolutely accepted innovation. And the precondition for innovation is failure, that you might get it right, you might not have all the information, but you'll do the best you can with where you are, reset, regroup, and then you know, redeploy again. And that was a huge enabler to be able to have that big change, but also enable that culture of change to, to bring in new ideas and innovation. Because fundamentally ESG, you can spend all the money you want in the world, but, it's a, but climate and human rights is a human-centric issue. It's caused by us. So the solution generally will come from us, for us, by us, right? So it's, it's actually, it's an unlocking human capital, not just, you know, spending cash and, you know, buying offsets and, because you fundamentally you can't offset slavery, right? Like, so that's, that's always the great funny irony of it. So, <laughs> so no, it's about yeah. unleashing your people, which is this great enabler. And, you know, you want to attract the workforce of tomorrow, then, then really allow that growth mentality and that safe space to, to grow in ESG. Um, you know, some, some companies that comes naturally, the smaller ones, because they have to, they're more adaptive. The bigger ones, that's going to take time. And that's going to be uh, a change for them. Yeah. And you can see that already in some of those majors. They've had issues in the, you know, environment issues and challenges that's going to force them and create that, that, those preconditions to change, you know, and innovation which only comes under either perspective shift, pressure or starvation. So if you can introduce one or three of those uh, preconditions, you generally get that change. Yeah. And that, that's really interesting to hear. And particularly from the, you know, from the, from the larger end of town, obviously ESG runs through you know, every organization, I would say, um, you know, attributes or, or factors that sit around those risks and opportunities have always been in existence for these businesses. Mm. 
Um, it's only recently we sort of, or the industry's found a, a lexicon or a word to, you know, try and um, aggregate this together. But, you know, in so doing, ESG can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. I mean, what, what does ESG really mean to you? Well, it's a good question. I think that, <clears throat> I think sustainability means a lot of people, a lot of things to a lot of people. Whereas ESG is relatively self-evident in the sense that when people think sustainability, they'll generally think environment. They'll think, you know, emissions is the major one. Um, whereas when you look at ESG, and it's a term that, you know, it's certain jurisdictions it has got favour or it doesn't, there's a debate about it constantly. But what it does really well is, is it says environment, you know, emissions, water, power, you know, tailings, all those sort of things, social, human rights, human rights at work, First Nations, community, human rights in your value chain. So modern slavery and responsible sourcing, for example, you know, and then the G side and the G side is sort of all really often forgotten about. And the lawyer in me always loves the G because it's the foundation. It's the governance. It's the law, you know, and that's one of the real challenges is, is People are forgetting that, but then also starting to realise that too, that, you know, 2015 was an amazing year for anyone in sustainability and ESG, you know, whichever term you wish to use, whichever one is comfortable for, for, for you or the listeners or whoever. The, because you brought about, you know, Paris, you, the Paris Agreement, you brought about, you know, the UK Modern Slavery Act came in, for example, and you brought about the real push for the UN sustainability development goals, which pretty much so any company anywhere is going to be a, a, a member of, or certainly that, you know, anyone who's generating, you know, over $10 million will be, right? And that was a huge game changer. But what we're seeing now is that connection between ESNG, the overlapping nature of it, mm -hmm. and that governance side is what we've sort of got a little distracted on has been the voluntary standards, which are great, versus the regulatory requirement. And that's a real challenge because the voluntary stuff is long-term, relatively fine out. We're gonna be carbon neutral by this date, or we're gonna be you know, by 2050 or 2030 or whatever that might be. And a voluntary standard, which is great. It's a little more, it's a little more fine out. It's gonna to come to an end, but governance, good governance, modern slavery, you know, environmental approvals, uh, cultural heritage laws, anti-corruption, um, you know, safe at work laws, all those sort of things that sit in a lot of that S and G space and, and, so, and, and a lot in as the E, e space too, uh, they're, they're infinite. They're constantly going to be with us. So, you know, even if we all become carbon neutral by 2030 or 2050, you're still going to have to have anti-corruption governance. You're still going to have to have modern slavery, um, you know, uh, in value chain, you know, governance. You're still going to have you know, workforce, health and safety governance. You, so, and the number one thing we've always found is when you look at it, you go, when we look at governance and our foundations, are we actually doing that right now? Are we in line with the law? Uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no. And that, that's, and that's, that's the real threat. Mm. You know, it's, it's, so it's, it's sort of not getting distracted. It's, on, uh, I mean, it's a very broad, uh, broad yeah. base. And one of the interesting things we're finding, particularly uh, with our clients uh, when they go on road shows, is probably the number one question that they're getting 80% of the times they walk into the room to do a presentation is, can you, can you define your approach on the ESG? And 
you know, the average um, person on the street sort of still treats ESG as a thing. So they kind of go, oh, of course, yep. we believe in the environment or, or social. Where, where I in intend fact, to, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you, you can see the sort of the, the panic, but it's still, you know, something that's not quantified or it, it, they're trying to, trying to effectively satisfy what they perceive as a value set sitting across the table and, and, and explain that. And that's where it yeah. gets pretty complex. I mean, for us, ESG is effectively a set of non-financial factors, as, as you say, that are risks and opportunities that sit around a business. And yes, that, it, that covers environmental factors, but, it, it, but it's so much more than that. And once you start to bring them together in a, in a systematic and clear sort of taxonomy, then, then it becomes a set of non-financial accounts. Um, yep. and, and that's where, you know, this is, this is no longer a conversation about good versus bad. That's not what ESG is trying, trying to be. It's trying to demonstrate um, that you have a good understanding and you have good control around basically business continuity or, or certainty around factors that are going to come along and impact the business. And that they may come along tomorrow and they may come along in five years time, and particularly obviously we're sitting here with climate. Um, you know, how do you justify investment in decarbonization when you're sitting there in a high inflationary environment? You know, we live in a world of immediacy, but you know, what's the bigger threat? Um, that's going to come along. Yeah, you raise a good point, and it's it's it. And I'll, I'll jump on that thing about inflation and immediacy. It's it's a really common trend. Recently, I've done a fair bit of travel. I've been overseas in you know Europe and Germany, and, and different parts of the world. And what's been really funny is 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 that people will talk about that. Oh, it's immediacy and the inflationary costs. And you go again, going back to my earlier statement. What's the law telling you to do? Hmm. You know, what's the governance around that? You, you, that you can't, well, you shouldn't be, you know, saying, oh, look, we're not going to pursue this because of, uh, because if the cost is going up, um, because of, at the cost of good governance, right? Um, and also there's a misconception that if you use ESG well, it does three really good things. It preserves value in your company it it de-risks you you know it in it de-risks from an event or it de-risks uh you know the the risks associated with that right you know negative media divestment those sort of things it pres it saves value if you want to look at your value chain you only want to look at scope three use you can also, while you're looking at scope three, look at modern slavery, and you can also look at sanctions as well. And through mapping out that value chain, what we found was we were saving all this money because we could find the inefficiency. I mean, scope three, for example, just as just to talk about that, because it's a common, most people understand it at least, you go to reduce that. It's not coming through new technology. It's through understanding your data and then applying that data to the situation to find efficiencies and consolidations. And that's, you know, that's the real power of what, you know, you, you folks do at EGSF um, is, is that combination of data. And I know that's a blatant plug for your company there, but it, it's, 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 it works and it does work. And one of the real pitfalls at the moment is people aren't understanding the data and the power of that data to create that change as a fulcrum for change from how you buy, how you operate, and then how you sell. And the third real change, so we've had, you know, preserve value, save value, is create new value. 
And that comes through market access, right? Mm. If, if you've got that ability to be able to say, we can prove our ESG credentials, this unlocks a whole new value stream, you know, whether that be we're a small to mid-tier critical minerals producer, we can put traceability over the top of that and we can then, you know, on-sell that to an OEM or a battery manufacturer or a car manufacturer and they can get the, you know, IRA tax credits out of that out of the US, that's new value. Or, hey, look, we are a, you know, Australian-based or a, you know, we can prove that we're a low-risk producer and we want to sell into Europe. Um, you'll meet, you know, mandatory human rights and environmental law due diligence around that. So you become the natural choice, so to speak. You become first in line, um, which, and also because you become this, have this ability to save your producers or your customers, sorry, money. Because through that traceability and good ESG, you're de-risking that value chain and that operation, which means you become boringly predictable. So if you are a major German automaker who's looking to secure nickel or copper or you know, whatever your critical mineral of choice is, for example, if you can go to the source and real and and show up that value chain using really good quality data that is immutable, you can then you if you de-risk that value chain from those supply cuts. And you know everybody saw that you know during initially during COVID and then with the Ukraine war, you saw how fragile. That, that global supply chain is. So the value of ESG is, is is so much to it. But then you also get the added benefits of being able to help people and planet because people, planet and profit are not mutually exclusive concepts. And I think that's a, a great misconception. And I think it's, it's lazy economics when, you know, people go, oh, it's going to cost us more money. Really? Prove it. Well, yeah, one, one of the things you talk about there is a couple of, couple of elements um, where we've been working with our clients, but simplifying it back, it's obviously quite a complex landscape, but simplifying it back to chairmen's and boards that are able to have three mm. to 10 minute discussions, but um, quantify and, and be able to then measure um, how they progress against that. One of the aspects that I think is a, a misconception with ESG, and again, it comes back to my comment around good versus bad is there's this thing called maturity. Um, and if you take it, it's a, it's a nice curve. It's, a, it's, it's something that we give to our clients and they use it in, in their, as they sort of align their corporate strategy with their ESG and to get ESG calibrated to, to really sort of help try and identify and unlock those step changes that you're talking about that serve that, that, that strategic corporate value. Um, but as you go up that curve, you know, there's no natural um, position to say we want to be top of that curve uh, and we can do it across all things because it's, it's totally unrealistic. But the curve starts off with, you know, disregard, which is, it's fine, but that's a, you know, we, we could argue quite heavily that no, no ASX company doesn't matter on size is going to be in a disregard position. You sort of move along to compliance, which is fine. You have to remain compliant to be able to remain, you know, active in the market or be part of supply chains, but then you move to the next stage and the next stage is, it's just efficient and smart. So by creating a mechanism where you pause and you think or, and decarbonization you know, is littered with these opportunities, but shifting fuel sources to low emission fuel, but being more in control actually mm -hmm. solves some of those inflationary factors. So you're, you're getting an environmental benefit, you're yeah. getting a brand benefit and you're, you're getting a direct economic benefit. Um, now, naturally, as you move up the curve, the next stage to that is, um, you know, you want a leadership role and you, you've got to be quite strategic about how you position and, and go there. Um, 
and beyond that, the final stage, which you know we tend to sort of articulate a little bit more for not-for-profits or or NGOs, but it's you know that that impact um, um, area that you know it's it's stargazing. It comes with a lot of risks, and you know some companies get up there and they're very good at it, and others attempt to get up there and and, and you know overshoot uh, and set expectations. As as you move up the maturity curve, absolutely risk for value erosion at the same time of value creation and it's that constant you know yeah. dynamic that you're balancing along the journey it, it's it's how you're going to view sustainability in esg that's the really interesting thing and, and going back on an earlier point when you said about you know how you know when you sit in front of investors and you say oh how how do you you know how's your esg strategy going it's really difficult we've lived in a culture you know a very jack welsh style uh you know good to great you know mindset in the corporate world in the last 30 years um that says you know failure is unacceptable um and everything must be great and it's all part of the pr and the challenge with the pr thing is is, is that it's been really easy in an esg space to sell look at look we're a sustainable company because it's all pr to profit right the challenge is now when you have to move that proof to profit that's going to get really tough Otherwise, you're going to be moving PR to prosecution, right? And that's that's increasingly happening. You see ASIC doing it, and the ACCC is doing it. You see it in the US and the EU with new laws coming through about greenwashing. Because no one wants to sit in front of investors and say, actually, we don't know. We mm. don't know what we don't know yet, and we're measuring it. Or this is where we were. It's okay. It's not great. And that's okay because we've got to start somewhere. Whereas if, if I said to you and changed that slightly and said, how are you going with your growth, you know, with your ESG strategy and change that to what's your level of ESG fitness right now, right? Everyone can talk about their fitness. I mean, I certainly can. I sit down there and I go, yeah, well, you know, it's okay. It's got a good baseline at the moment, but, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, we're being consistent at the moment, but I do need to put more, you know, capacity into it so I can, you know, drop a few more kilos or whatever. And because my goal is, you know, I want to lose 10 kilos or, you know, run a marathon or whatever. And if you frame the contract concept like that, it's more relatable, but it's also, I know this sounds really strange, but a judgment-free space where it's okay to be vulnerable, right? Because every company is vulnerable right now. I I could not think of one that does not have problems. And key to that was um, a couple of years ago, There was, I was speaking with a CEO of a very large international explosives and fertilizer company. And they said, you know, when we we're talking about responsible value chain and sustainable value chain, they said, what does a good company look like to you right now? And I said, one with problems. Because if they've got problems, you're, the work you're doing is finding them, it's unearthing them, and you're resolving them. That's the, that's the powerful thing. Because remember, when we're looking at climate change, or we're looking at human rights, or we're looking at social inclusion we're not it's not a race to be number one it's a race for impact so uh, change the metrics and change the conversation around saying instead of being who's number one based on who's got the best pr campaign as we move into a space where we're saying about measurement and of impact and effectiveness you start to say how many people are you helping today how many people have you lifted out of poverty today how much biodiversity have you protected today how many species have you solve you know save today and once you can start quantifying that that's going to be the game changer that's going to be but we're not there yet 
right now we're it's it's it as you said it's a maturity thing where everybody's extremely embryonic or even pre-embryonic mm. um to be able to say okay what does this even mean let's get a common language around it and start to move towards this as an approach what do we need to do what do we need to understand to start measuring where we are um and a great example of that was uh, a couple of months ago um, i was in a tutorial doing some stuff with Yale, really interesting because the, the conversation came up about baselining and, you know, they said, oh, well, and it was a lot of people, you know, JP Morgan or, you know, really, you know, RBC, CLSA, you know, the big, you know, inv- you know, banks, investment banks, buy and sell side traders, those sort of people in there. And what was really interesting was, is that it was a case of, we were talking about, you go and baseline you know, your emissions, for example, or your whatever that threat may be, water usage or human rights or whatever. Um, and it's a number, 10,000. Let's just use emissions, 10,000 tonnes. And then six months later, it's 15,000. And everybody's running around with the hair on fire going, what? This is terrible. And then a year later, it's actually 18,000. But no one actually has asked the question, have we increased the emissions? Or has our data gotten better that we're actually being able to quantify the size of the price? So what, what do you want? What's better? Do you want to live in sort of a delusion that, oh, no, it's okay, we just do 10,000 and that's great? Or you actually say, no, this is the whole size of the prize. This is, this is the size of the elephant we're going to have to eat. And that's okay. Look, and you can't eat an elephant alone, right? You always bring your friends, your family, your tribe, your village, and everybody in on it to share it, right? So it's the same concept, you know. This is this is not an company's not got it. You can't do this in isolation, and there's still a mindset that there's we must do this in isolation. You can't. You are part of someone's value chain. You know, in mining, for example, you know, I've discussed this a couple of times. You know, mining companies are really funny space because it's the top and bottom of a value chain. You know, it's the top of its own. It will spend, you know, $20 billion a year or $30 billion a year on truck tires, electric, you know, batteries, you know, whatever that might be, you know, in, in, in procurement. But then at the same time, it's the bottom of everybody else's. You know, we sell, you know, iron ore, coal, copper, whatever that might be. And then you're buying that again. So it's really interesting to see that they've got this real opportunity to be able to do something at both ends and then meet in the middle. Because the middle is where there's a complete lack of transparency and lack of data, and that's 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 that and that's um that's the exciting space right there, right? Yeah, now. getting that data to, to also, to yeah, and getting that data to talk a common language. So not only does a, a company or its reporting unit generate data, but bringing that into context for maybe an investment manager that holds a portfolio of gold companies, mm-hmm. um, and they're trying to assess their portfolio exposure and then the spread across that portfolio and then where that benchmarking yeah. you know, kicks in. Um, I mean, I, I think to anyone out there, we know there's a myriad of um, ESG frameworks, global frameworks, sector frameworks, Absolutely. Uh, climate frameworks. And, and you know, my view, I don't know what your view is, Joel, I'll be interested to hear, but my view is they're always going to be frameworks out there. There's going to be continuation of frameworks. I know there's um, a big push around the IWSB and the harmonization there but frameworks are going to be here to exist and they're going to be shifting sands as you know, society continues Always. to evolve. Um, the, so. There's a great inaction at the moment. And, and I think there's, again, it's sort of 
a bit lazy, um, where a lot of folks are going, oh, it's so ambiguous at the moment. We just don't know. We need certainty. So everyone just sit still, keep calm, and retain the status quo. And you go, oh, you're not going to last long if you do that. And I think that's the thing. You are right about the frameworks. But again, going back to the frameworks and saying, well, okay, first and foremost, let's 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 keep it simple. What can we control right now? Well, what you can control is governance, your laws. What laws apply to us? And are we in line with those laws? Yes or no? It's, it's a really simple answer. It's yes or no. There's no in-between on it. Get that right. And then those frameworks and those, uh, those industry-based, you know, frameworks and, you know, anything you want, which is then shooting for the stars, which is brilliant, that then fills the gap when you can say, yeah, the law says we need to do X, but we really want to do Y. Let's do this. You know, knowing the fact that law takes a long time to change, but frameworks, you know, as you said, they're much more agile and they will achieve. <laughs> but I think the number one thing is that this is also don't get confused with the noise. There's a lot of noise in a battlefield, right? That's And it can distract mm-hmm. you from your objective and your purpose. And, you know, one of the big things is the ability to be able to say, what's your purpose as a company? Not just, oh, we've got a purpose statement and, you know, it's lip service. Really live it, you know, like and go, our purpose and our, and our strategic objectives are by 2030, we're going to have X by 2050 we're going to have why we as a company want to have gender balance or whatever that might be and then shoot for the stars on that one go for that one aim for that because you've got be objective focused because you, you know this right when when you're objective focused you then have to adapt and overcome because you're focusing about the direct the objective versus the directive you know if the directive isn't there, then just go for that objective, you know, take the mountain, you know, US Marines are really simple like that. You know, if the battle fails, uh, retake the high ground, keep communication going and hold it until help comes. That's a very simple thing that anyone can understand, right? And it's the same thing with this is, you know, you don't have to go into the minutiae of the laws to say, you know, cutting down trees is wrong. Well, not that's not wrong, but it's, it's you know, illegal for deforestation for palm oil, for example, that goes into your biofuels. Is that something as a company you want to do? Yes or no? Come on. No. Okay. It's, Let's um, do that. You know, it's certainly been our journey and my personal journey. Um, mm. you know, as you know, my background's land and water investing. And I, I grew mm. up in Kenya, surrounded by, I guess, what we now classify as ESG um, attributes or factors sitting in those businesses. And a number of those we had to do just to, to manage. But well, certainly my role when I was MD of a, of a small ASX company trying to grapple with this, we were meeting with consultants. My view and, and um, on the world of ESG previously in my roles, we'd, we'd used it at several times throughout my career very effectively to, to influence um, a number of things, whether that be capital or particularly market yeah. access and market access with a premium for defensive pricing. Um, but when I sat there and talked to the board, Literally, my chairman cut me straight off and, and, and said, you know, this is superfluous philanthropy. So if I want to donate money yeah. to the WWF. I do not need this management team telling me how to do it. And you're certainly your, your shareholders. And, you know, I guess the challenge I was having there was I was getting thrown a lot of frameworks. Uh, oh, wait, go do B Corp or um, Reconciliation Action Plan or, or GRI. Um, and I think frameworks are really useful for 
identifying uh, or, or getting an understanding how to measure certain things or how to put principles into practice and how others yep. are talking about that. But it does feel like it's very much jumping at the, the rainbows. At the end of the rainbow, it's, it's, it's looking at the disclosure piece, but it sort of builds this habit internally where you do a tick and flick exercise. This is not applicable. Yes, we do that. And then you put it in the bottom drawer and you think about it a year later. Uh, and those, and particularly clients that we're now working with, you know, have done that and it's been a, an educational process, but they get to the point where they go, so what? So what, what has this done? So in listening to you talk there, um, uh, and this is something we really recognize at ESG plus F. So we're, we're completely framework agnostic. One of the, the first things I did when I stepped out of the ASX um, uh, role was tackle this. And, and, and to us, it made really clear. I, I could say to any listener out there that's sort of earlier on in their journey and trying to think about frameworks is the discoverable universe is already there. The taxonomy is really clear. So if you look at um, uh, any of the governments around the world, and I think, you know, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board have done an excellent job of bringing that accounting discipline or taxonomy yeah, to I, this. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, but what we're able to do now is you just think of, um, think of frameworks like books and you, you use that taxonomy, the 26 general issue categories, which are great convenient buckets that apply and can be structured across any organization. It doesn't matter whether, what size, scale or sector or geographical region, but just think of frameworks like a bookshelf and then think of those general issue categories with indicators in there as chapters. So if you want to, um, you want to, you want to have a focus on a material topic for your business, an obvious one that we you know, often see, particularly with emission intense industries is greenhouse gas emissions. So it's known yep. as the, the IC one, the ability to progress your data and turn your unstructured data and your automation of data and just pull the chapters that are relevant out of all the books, just the GIC mm. one chapters out of all those books progress against that, that works for your organization, for your sector, and then put them back is how you sort of effectively start to bring unstructured data into structured data and then create an instrument that serves all of those elements that you're talking about um, internally. And, and so I guess my experience and then hearing your experience as a practitioner, a lot of people immediately jump onto maybe a consultant or, or PR type, investor relations type activity and immediately think about ESG as a disclosure, a pretty picture, a report, uh, you know, look at us, this is, these are things to look at. Whereas what I heard from you was actually bringing the team and all the internal measurements there, aligning the organization, the behavior, finding those step changes, being able to measure them, coordinate, uh, effectively get organizational buy-in. That's what's ultimately driven value um, for, for, for the investment, I guess, in, in terms of the extra effort. Yeah, because it's, it's really simple. It comes down to this. How you buy, operate, and disclose will define how you sell and who invests to be market relevant and be market attractive, to be market accessible to capital, to be market accessible to approvals. Uh, it, that's the, the big thing. And the thing that underpins all of those you know, how you buy, operate, disclose, assess, is two things, law and data, right? So, you know, mm. and that's the big thing, right? That 
that the data and centralization of that data to be able to start making effective to, to help you make effective decisions, but also make risk based decisions. This is the core thing. You can't solve everything. So taking a risk based decision as a company using from quality data against those frameworks to say, actually, we're going to prioritize, you know, decarbonization, human rights, uh, gender inclusion and diversity um, and whatever else you might wish to do. Um, to then justify that and then provide that further capacity to resolve those and then move on to the next one and then move on to the next one. And that will change and evolve as and your data is going to tell you that. So, you know, you, you, you look at uh, inclusion and diversity, right, for example, right now, your data is going to tell you whether or not you're on track or not and against those frameworks. And the challenge is, though, and this is the, the great opportunity. And, and again, I, the reason I love your product is because it's, and, and again, it's not a blatant plug for it, but it's because it, it works. It's central. It, it takes all those frameworks. And I think, let's be clear, those frameworks are fundamentally a variation on a common theme. And out of that, to help you make those risk-based decisions so you can then prioritize them. And as you see that performance lift, you can then readjust, as I was saying. The other thing is as well is then moving easily quantifiable metrics. And the E side of sustainability environment sites tends to be a lot more quantifiable. Water, diversity, uh, I'm not sorry, not, not diversity, water, um, you know, emissions, uh, biodiversity, they're very quantifiable things. When you start to get into the <coughs> SMG things, that's the harder part. So how do you use those frameworks to help take those frameworks, those many frameworks and your data, apply them over the top to then be able to say, actually, we can take, you know, the S, the social side and the G side and create something that's more qualitative into something that's quantifiable to measure impact and effectiveness to de-risk, to support, to uh, deprioritize even, you know, which will be great. Again, what's going to happen is eventually, you know, in the next three to five years, hopefully, we'll start to see a big shift in decarbonization where you'll start to say, well, let's take the priority off that because that's already on a good trajectory. It's already working. And then let's relocate that capital, those resources or that focus onto other issues, you know. But I think... Yeah, absolutely. The role Absolutely. of it is, I think, you know, that, that sort of fixed volume. Yeah, sorry, go on. <laughs> no, no, I, I think that's, that speaks, that speaks volumes. So, you know, through your career, obviously, um, as a lawyer, you're working across a number of businesses, um, uh, supporting those companies. And then you went in house with BHP, uh, for a number of years and became very much a, you know, roll up the sleeves practitioner within those organizations, yep. um, parachuted around and. I think one of the advantages, obviously, is the resources that those companies have. Talking to listeners that may be sitting on the opposite end of that, they may be, you know, junior ASX, um, um, 20, you know, 20 to $100 million market cap companies. They may be in exploration. Do you see ESG as relevant to those businesses? And if so, you know, how, without the same um, volume of resources, where, where, where do you see it fitting in for, uh, for those organizations? It fits into everybody. The, you know, the good thing about climate is, is, is that uh, the climate impact impacts us all as hum human beings right now. Um, so it, it's, it's relevant to everybody. And I think there's a great misconception 
that you know you can have a large you know mining house or a large uh, oil company or a large manufacturing you know entity whatever that might be you know F, you know FT100 or Nasdaq or whatever and that, that they're throwing all this money at it I think the number one thing I've realised throughout my career is you don't necessarily need to spend a lot of money what you need is good people get your good people right first to then build to take things from principles to policy, policy to process, process to practice, practice to proof. And that's really critical with the data space, proof to profit, right? It's about getting the right people first who can solve the problems, who have got the education, exposure and aptitude and attitude to solve those problems. And that's one of the hard parts. Actually, they're the biggest challenge right now for the, the small to mid caps in any business anywhere is, is, is attracting that talent, which is evolving. And there's, you know, the ESG and sustainability is still relatively new. There's not a huge amount of practitioners around it, you know, that have got the 10 or 12 or 15 years or 20 years. And they're not necessarily there, or they may have part of it, not all of it. Um, but it's attracting the right people to solve the problem, to solve the objective, right? And work backwards from there. Uh, to be honest, I think it's the small and mid caps that are actually going to drive the market. I think because they've got the agility and the adaptability mindset of saying, well, we've got a dollar fifty a brick and a piece of string. How do we solve this? And if we pay people mm. a little bit more and let them run their paces and enable that culture, we, we, we're going to retain them, not constrain them. And through that, we're going to get a better impact. Um, you know, and again, I, I, one of the, and I've spoken very highly of them in the past, but one of the great benefits of Oz Minerals was that was their mindset. Absolutely aspirations and thinking of being a big house but always operated like a small ex explorer which was really funny like that and it was great because it enabled this great cross-discipline um learning collaboration and results that really spoke for themselves and it was very very good and everybody was learning as well and helping everybody else learn and lift so it was a bit more of a community activity to, to make if that makes sense but i think you know, one thing that's often misunderstood is exploration, you know, right at the start of a value chain, right at the start of a product life cycle for nickel or copper or critical mineral, whatever that might be, there you've got the ability at the, at, as the alpha, you know, alpha to omega, you know, beginning, at the absolute beginning, to be able to set a new standard to say, actually, before we even start producing, we're going to be carbon neutral, we're going to have great ESG, and that's going to set the culture and the performance for the company, whether we expand naturally ourselves, we get bought out. But regardless, if you're at that you know, smaller mid-cap space, the better you do at ESG, the more attractive you're going to be because you're de-risking that investment. You're enabling that access to capital to growth. You know, if you want to grow your debt facility by three or 400 or again, another 50 million, whatever that might be, you're going to be at the mercy of, say, more commercial banking, for example, versus, say, you know, being able to, you know, do a bond issue and say, well, raise the capital ourselves that way, you know, like a like a big, big, big house can do. So the better you're doing it at the beginning, where you can bake it in at the beginning, the further you're going to go. The And you will, I, every time we've done it in any small to mid cap, it's paid dividends because you're literally measuring twice, cutting once you be, do become more attractive because 
you've you attract the right people you're getting the retaining the culture behind it and through that you're de-risking that investment it's really simple like i said esg and sustainability is the greatest enabler whether it be financial performance cultural change in a company um growing a company merging a company it, it does it all things because it interconnects every part of a value chain upstream downstream within the business unit itself so it, it it's 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 a constant everywhere so it's a great enabler yeah i think that's really great we're finding with the explorers that we work with increasingly um you know, they started off originally sort of saying, look, let's, let's try and get some disclosure around ESG and by, you know, neurology to the, to the subject matter, hopefully someone that's going to rub off or someone's going to invest in us. But those that are really executing this really well, particularly even um, we've got a client and hopefully we'll be having them on the podcast talk about their experience. But even before they put a, a drill rig in the ground, you know, they're a newly listed com- company, is actually they wanted to schedule the stages. So they, they wanted to understand what was material to them what should they be betting through those different phases of feasibility and dual programs and building up an economic mm. resource? So then they know ahead of time what they want to do yeah. and they can start to talk to that. When we get to this, we will be this. This is what we're targeting. And obviously the data gets better mm. and then the instrument itself can start to be used. And you know, a lot of obviously drivers around ESG, which is, you know, if we do ESG, will we get capital? and Will it be cheaper capital? I mean, talking to those, those juniors right now, one of the, biggest opportunities there. And I think, you know, you, you touched on it there is when you look through the flow sheet, the, the, the process and the, and then you start to find opportunity and that could be emissions, but there are other things, you know, um, toxic regions that you're using in processing or, um, um, or integrating mining operations into jurisdictions and co-locating value add processes, um, in battery manufacturing hubs. Um, one of the things we're really seeing, particularly companies that are, are in that, you know, 20 to maybe a couple of hundred million dollar market cap, is they're quite quickly aligning and being able to have quite mature conversations with the supply chain downstream. Hmm. And the supply chain, whether that's an EV vehicle manufacturing company, just using that as an example, are active in the sustainability debt market. So hmm. they're using either green bonds or sustainability linked bonds which are target-based linked debt instruments, which they're raising several billions of dollars, which they're then deploying upstream yeah. to help solve some of the challenges. And so we're actually seeing increasingly, you know, portion of capital, particularly non-dilutionary capital, like not going to the, to, to, to the equity markets here in Australia, which are very flat at the moment, but actually being able to attract and build capital stacks around projects mm. is particularly being driven from that market. And I find that fascinating. And, what a, what an awesome opportunity, even, even once you get yourself the foundations and the credentials to be able to go and have that conversation with those parties that just historically would never have happened. It would have been build it, use lots of expensive capital, and then we'll think about you and there's an offtake and that's you know, a one way street to effectively being a, I guess, um, you know, utility rates and margins because you're trying to, to trying to get your, your mine out of the traps, but, um, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's 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 an amazing space. And what's even more fascinating now is 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 that, you know, when you start to look at good K, KYC or good KYS. So if we look at KYC, so know your customer or counterparty checks. What's 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 roaring into view right now, and has been yeah, started to some areas have done it faster than others. Has been that, you know, 
good KYC is no longer, you know, just sanctions and solvency, right? Like it, it's now, you know, sustainability and slavery too, for example. So sanction, solvency, slavery, and sustainability um, as a, as to be able to help, you know, to, to undertake what that, what that risk is in that investment, what that, that what that customer risk is, you know, um, what that counterparty risk is to be able to then uh, provide that access to capital. So I think it's, and that's all data centric again. It's no longer could you please provide us some PR that says you know we're doing a great thing. I mean you know you you know walk in and get a bank loan these days and go oh no come on I'm a great guy I'm, I'm you know no no I'm good for it. They're, they're, no one's going to believe that. It's all about the data, right? <laughs> this is no different, you know. And and the challenge with that is 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 that when you are in that phase where you're saying look we're seeking more, more capital or we're looking for that you know growth, you need to have your data centralized, standardized, and proceduralized, ready to be operationalized. So due diligence, when it occurs, is, is there. It's quick. It's fast. It moves It moves faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not just in that. It's also how you disclose as well. I mean, any in, you know, person in sustainability with the salt has, knows the drudgery of <laughs> disclosures or, you know, when an investor, you know, whether doesn't matter who it is, an institutional investor or sovereign wealth fund or whoever comes in and says, oh, you know, provide us this data or could you please fill out this due diligence form for us? It's a painful, painful administrative process versus the day you can sort of automate it or got it all relative on your fingertips that says, and not only that, it fits into these frameworks and satisfies this. That means that your job is easier, so you're more efficient. You're maximizing your people because most people, you know, most companies, small to mid, will only have maybe one person doing sustainability. They may have numerous environment people, so doing environment, you know, traditional environmental, you know, testing and water and that sort of work or community or, you know, those sort of elements. But one person really driving that whole sustainability agenda. And it's, it means that they can spend their time driving impact and effectiveness of those programs, not doing administration, which is important, but fundamentally low value. And it's, um, and it's, and it's also a great cause of burnout. So it's that ability to be able to expedite that, or if they're a customer and that or a future customer, you know, show us, show us your numbers. Okay, great. You know, or, you know, and it's fascinating to see that see that growth right now, and that includes you know when you have conversation with investors right now who are saying we want to know your water usage or your potential water usage or what's your rehabilitation on your you know drill drill pads right now for exploration are they being done has there been a cultural heritage breach in there that's a real favourite right now and and that's coming from Europe mm-hmm. you know on the back of Duke and Gorge you know what's what's been the disturbance from cultural heritage now that traditionally wouldn't have been captured that well. Or it has, or it hasn't been valued as much. Now that's a valuable piece of data, but to get that, you have to know where to look. And I think the platform that can align with standards, prove that align, prove that alignment, start to measure that performance against that. You know, which is the next phase of evolution. Evolution is going to be is, is going to be critical as a value creator. I mean, because you know, ESG is not just compliance, it's a value creation opportunity. Um, and I think that's, that's really important. And it's, yeah. it's, it's the, the challenge with it is it's a change in thinking or an evolution in thinking on businesses to start going, we need to build this in now, early where we can, especially in the exploration or, you know, early development phase. 
don't get constrained by cost. Because if you said, we have an engineering issue over here, that they'll, they'll go and spend millions on that and doing, you know, because it's very technical and very analytical. And generally that that's towards their bias because, you know, boards and CEOs tend to be, you know, in mining companies tend to be, you know, geologists or geophysicists or engineers. So there's that natural, dare I say, academia around it to some degree versus actually bringing a sustainability person to the table as a core part of your thinking, planning and strategy and the data that they need to help drive those good outcomes. Um, that's that's a bit of also a bit of a tall order at the moment, but you've got to start so, somewhere. So, so, yeah, so flipping it, poacher come gamekeeper, um, let's assume you, you're now an MD of a 50 mil market cap um, ASX company or a 100 mil ASX company, and you're going to say, right, we, we've got to have this conversation around ESG. We've done nothing. Um, we, we, we need to do something and respond to this. Who are you pulling into the room? What are the things from a foundational piece that you're expecting to see from them? And, and you know, typically, how long do you think it would take for an organization to, to get to a stage where, um, I guess, you know, it's on the journey now, the bus is, you know, or the train yeah. pulled out of the station, so to speak, and it's starting to then, you know, contribute back? Me personally, <laughs> if you were working for me, I'd be pretty demanding on it straight up front, mainly because, again, that's my bias, right? So it's, um, for me, I look at it and go, what's the, you know, I'd want to de-risk it. But on general, in general, I'd be looking at it and saying, okay, ESG needs to cut across corporate affairs and external affairs, you know, who you tend to generate a lot of the publications and disclosures and that's where investor relations tends to sometimes sit and then there's a clear overlap there with finance because then of course you know how you look at you know reporting standards and for as we said the frameworks they now tend to sit more in in in, in finance so you'd need your corporate affairs and external affairs people. you'd need your um your finance people there and you need your technology person too it's often forgotten bring your tech person in who understands the tech side of the business, but is also generally never brought in. And you go, why? These people manage and influence the tech side of the business. And they're also got a wealth of knowledge that they can say, actually, there's a market, there's a product out here, there's a product out there. It's an off the shelf product or whatever that might be. Bringing them in because remembering that, oh, one last thing I forgot. Bring your procurement people. Procurement is the most underrated and understated group in any company anywhere right now. And they keep things running and they're really important. And, um, and I, because when you start to look at, you know, and you use GHG, you know, greenhouse gas um, protocols. When you start to look at scope three, for example, there's about eight major pillars or sources Six of those are generally controlled by procurement who also then influence things like modern slavery, which is if you're under hundred million, that's not a huge impact on you because you, you know, the threshold for the modern slavery act is hundred million, but, but, you know, things like, you know, sanctions as well. So, I mean, they've got a huge amount of say in this and they need to come to the table because they're an important part of the business. They keep your supply chains running. So if you've got your commercial people, you know, your, 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 your finance people, your external and corporate affairs people, your procurement people, your tech people, you really need to bring them all into the table and say, okay, how are we going to do this? Mm -hmm. But what's best is 
let them do what they do best, but bring in someone that does understand this. And that might not necessarily mean there's a person, one person that you go out to market and hire traditionally. You may need to have a really good partnership with a great consulting firm. You know, here ESG and F is pretty good. Um, bring them in to help support, to build that. Remember what I was talking about? Capability and capacity for that first part of the journey to get up and running, to get the maturity going. So everyone is then comfortable to say, okay, we get this now. We've got a, we've got a good feeling about, we've got a good understanding about this. Then we'll find our own person who'll step in and sink into that. Um, you know, you look at the rise of yep. the chief sustainability officer, it's still relatively few and far between. But even then, when you look at chief sustainability officers anywhere, whether it be banking, mining, most of them, yeah, don't have that much experience realistically, hands-on experience, or even in that sort of education exposure experience space. Because what's happening is those companies are hiring internally. They're not sure, so they take a safe bet and they go, we're gonna hire internally. We're gonna hire someone we know and trust, mm -hmm. which is a really good thing to do. It's a comfortable thing to do. It keeps you in that comfortable zone, but nothing, or that comfortable place, but nothing good grows in a comfortable place. Sometimes you may need that person who's gonna come in who is new, because this is new to help create that change. Yeah, it's interesting. We, we find, um, you know, people into those roles, um, really good people in the organization and probably people that have had more of a can-do attitude, but they get burnt out pretty quick. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're trying to learn, they're trying to execute, they're trying to move at pace. Um, and you've got organizations that have got a lot of things on their critical path. So everyone else in the room is like, just get out of my way. I've got to do what I've got to do that sits in my, my yep. bubble. We, you know, we, 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 we broke this process down into what we call Pathfinder stage. It, it lays the foundations because I think before you go jumping at the traps and chasing a, a report or an outcome, you've got to get good foundation. You've got to get good organization. You've got to get buying across the board. And, you know, for us, you know, when you get, and that's the, that's the, starting off with the foundations, the material, well, you got to, you got to get data. You got to be able to know where to get it and you've got to be able to then be able to put responsibility in multiple different areas to go and get that so that's how we really unlock we, we find with our clients a huge amount probably over 90 percent of information that we then have moved through strategically used they didn't know they sat on or it was just embedded somewhere yeah and there was no way to to, to get to that information but the firm foundational principles of what you got to do before you go off chasing you know um objectives is you know, obviously we all know about um, materialities, double materiality, but the simple thing doesn't matter whether it's GRI, SASB or a, a, another, our preferences, and we really like those 26 general issue categories, those buckets, because it simplifies the way information is structured and how you go about getting it. I'll go back one step with that. Can, can you explain to your listeners about materiality what does that mean because again this is this is a term that you and i understand but a lot of people don't and they go materiality what does that mean double materiality what's what's that is it like a you know double cheeseburger or something can you explain that term 